Good morning. You guys multiplied when we started. It was funny. I don't look up everyone I'm playing drums. I don't know why. How's everybody doing this morning? This is the awkward transition where I adjust to having played the drums to trying to speech. So, hmm. Glad you guys made it here safely this morning. Um, try not to cancel church unless there's like level two snow emergency where it's like illegal. Or, I don't know, we're coming up on the breaking a record for snowfall. So if that all were to happen at once, we'd probably have to. But we can still park our car somewhere in the parking lot and make it here, so we're good. Um, they don't always do our section. Sometimes they do other spots, but hope you enjoyed that song. I grew up on that. That was DC Talk, Decent Christian Talk. Um, <laughs> for those of you that came into the church after, what, 97, 2002 maybe? I don't know, somewhere in that area. Uh, it may not be familiar to you. You missed an entire swath of Third Day, The Newsboys, and DC Talk. Um, so you can go culture yourself uh, and enjoy that. It's good stuff. Um, it's kind of a selfish indulgence on getting to play that song, um, although I, I do like the bass part for that. Today is a little bit cheesy. Um, I decided to wear my Jesus glow-in-the-dark shirt from camp this year. Um, <laughs> I have a sweet little staff sign on the back, so it's less cheesy because I'm a boss. Um, but... I think today uh, I really just want to try to hone in on a couple different things, and light being obviously the theme of our text today. I know there wasn't a renovate us up. Um, you don't have to look for renovate us to have permission to just read ahead in the text. Um, I would just suggest you do that in general. Um, just have a lot of stuff going on. That'll be up again this week. Um, it was up this week. It just didn't get published, um, so that was my fault. Um, I forgot to click the button. So anyways... Um, it was up there, but uh, it didn't get put on the main website. So today, um, we're kind of jumping into the rest of John, and what was interesting about last week is we got to see the main setup. Obviously, that was his introduction, verses 1 through 4, is really John's purpose statement, if you will, um, for uh, his letter from Ephesus to the church. And one thing, I, I don't remember if you guys are familiar with this or if it just happened to pop up while I was in school. Have you guys ever have to write uh, five-paragraph papers? You know what I'm talking about? You open up with your intro and thesis, you have to have three points, and then you have to have a conclusion. And um, teachers are fun like that and say, yeah, today, why don't you go ahead and start? We're going to warm up with a five-paragraph essay um, on why you like football. And so you have to come up with that. You have to write it real quick. Uh, and it forces you, at least for me, I, I enjoy those because I like to debate. Um, particularly at the time, I enjoyed that because it made me think through practical reasons of why something works. In a persuasion style, we have to present in a five-paragraph essay um, our thesis, what we believe, what we're trying to say. I think football is awesome for this reason. Uh, it's a contact sport. Um, it allows men to be men, and uh, it engenders cultural enthusiasm. So I just came up with that on the top of my head. That's, that's an example of having to find things that would support what we want to say uh, and then sum it all up in a conclusion with the idea of at least trying to defend your point, um, ideally with a secondary aspect of trying to persuade someone to see your point. And when we jump into First John, I think you'll, he had some clauses last week, four clauses uh, that pointed to how we can know God. And if you were to take just those four verses, we look at First John and he's setting up a persuasion 
type paper, uh, and a, almost in the sense of what we would say is a five-paragraph essay. Now, obviously, in Greek, um, they're not going to set up their paragraphs that way. In fact, there's no punctuation. Um, so that makes it entirely difficult to uh, try to find that kind of setup. But nonetheless, we can see as we read First John, him giving us a very clear summary statement at the beginning. And this is what I'm trying to do. And then going from there, he begins to, uh, in his case, at least dismantle the other argument. So he sets us up in the first four verses by giving us two main things that he's trying to accomplish. Two main things that he's trying to accomplish. And then he begins to go into verse four, I'm sorry, in verse five, and the rest of the first chapter and into chapter two, and give us his argument for how we can know God and for why the doctrine that you are learning is false. So if you remember from last week, or our two weeks ago rather, our two big themes in 1 John are these. The first one is doctrinal teaching and the importance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We've learned that doctrine is incredibly important to John. One of the main themes of the entire letter is that we would have sound doctrine. Particularly in this case, when he's dealing with the false teaching that goes on, is particularly to the point of the incarnation of Christ. So he wants a strong doctrine within the church, particularly to the point of Christ in the flesh. The second main theme that we saw is that, is more the question rather, what does the life of a believer look like? What does the life of a believer look like? If I claim to be a believer, what should my life look like? Or in other words, how do I know that I know God? First John, for me, particularly chapter 1, um, is what you would call a pocket sermon. Um, in, in school, we were encouraged to have about three, anywhere from three to five sermons, always at the go. Uh, it was our pocket sermon. So if someone were to say, hey, you feel like preaching today? Sure, I got something. And you just you pull one of these out, and it's uh, just a sermon that you already have points for. It's something that um, you already know well that you can just kind of do on the go. You don't have to have time to restudy the material. You can just kind of go, now it's probably not going to be your most fantastic thing ever, and it may not be the most um, you know, pertinent to the situation, um, but it's nonetheless available for you. Or more in our case, um, if someone decides to have a baby on Sunday morning, um, we could pull that out and run with that. However, I've not really had to worry about my pocket sermons with serving with Matt uh, because he provides me 18 pages um, off of which I can pretty much just teach. Um, so it's easier to run them with what he has than just pull out something that's off topic. So for me, First uh, John is one that I really like. I've, I've been in this text. This was one of the first texts that I preached um, in big church at, uh, at First Baptist in Vandalia. Uh, just talking about sin, so that's fun. Your first time, you know, in front of all the adults, telling them that they're sinners. Uh, <laughs> that was my experience in learning how to preach. Um, this is a pocket sermon for me. Uh, so what's dangerous about that is I can come in here with a very, um, very high level, as we have talked about, flying into the text at different altitudes. Uh, I can fly pretty high in this one, and it cannot be incredibly applicable to uh, our context. So the danger is uh, having to still contextualize to renovation. What is God's word for renovation? Not just what is God's word, uh, but how as a proclaimer of the word am I supposed to apply it to our individual context? And so I think we have um, something good to go off here um, that if we follow our main two themes that we're trying to do, doctrinal importance, particularly the incarnation, and secondly, what does it mean to be a believer? What does it look like?
Um, I think we're going to find ourselves for renovation with some very big tests today, uh, particularly for those of us that would call ourselves Christians. Um, so if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you believe that you are a Christian and you, were, you would raise your hand, um, there's some big tests for us to look at today in this text. And so my goal today is to help you walk through um, the rest of chapter 1. We're going to be going from verse 5 into chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, so we're covering a significant chunk this week, whereas next week we're only going to cover about two or three verses. Uh, there's a reason for that. Like I started talking about with the paper, uh, this is one cohesive thought for John. All right, he's, he's giving us his presentation, if you will. The rest of the book builds up on that. You're going to see recurring themes a lot. Um, there is an aspect today of Christian love that we're going to mention but not dwell on a lot today. It comes up later um, in, ver- in chapter 4 and 5. Uh, we'll be really pushing on that. Um, I, we're going to mention it today. But today, we really have just his, his main argument. And I want to try to wrap that up into one presentation for us. And we're just going to walk through this text, uh, as I would hope you um, are learning to do in your own Bible study, um, and try to give you some ideas of how to exposit the text. So, let's jump in. Uh, first point for today is that God is holy. God is holy. You're going to find today that we're going to start by looking at our two themes of 1 John you're going to find two main doctrines that we need to grab a hold of. If his first goal in this letter is to teach the significance of doctrine and then the teaching thereof of that doctrine, we've got to start with what doctrine he thinks is important. Now, we already mentioned the incarnation of Christ in verses 1 through 4, about how we have known him. We have known him from the beginning. We have looked upon him. We have seen him. We have, should walk with him. So we know that much already, but we need to grab a hold of two main doctrines. The first is that God is holy. So let's look at our text, verse 5. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. The danger with Paul, the danger with John, uh, particularly outside of his gospel, the danger with a lot of the epistles, the letters um, in the New Testament, is that you can pretty much do an outline in your notes of each verse. Most of uh, Paul's letters, particularly his epistles, not so much Romans where he's presenting big ideas, but he has a lot of imperatives for us. There's a lot of just each sentence is something that we can hang our hat on. Um, In fact, I mean, you could do entire sermons based off of just these three verses. Uh, So there's a ton packed into each sentence here. Now the goal for us is how can we not dive that far in? We can always keep going in and in and in and in. The goal is to kind of step back. We have an overview. Now let's look at the chunks. What's he talking about? What are our pieces that we need to put together? And so in taking notes for this, my encouragement for you is to look for a few things. All right, I send people to 1 John when they have doubts about their salvation. Right, you're going to see all through this text ways to know that you know God. Ways to be assured of that. And when Matt and I were talking about what uh, text to go into, what series to do next, um, we're just kind of sorting through some things that God had put in my heart. And I brought up the idea of First John, because um, we talked about going in, right into Acts coming out of Luke. And uh, I was just talking about this. What, what, do, what does the church need? Um, we just came out of an entire gospel learning who Jesus is, right? That was the main question. Who's Jesus? 
We came out with our identities, with our rhythms, who we are as a church, who is Jesus, what do we do, how do we live. We have all that. Uh, this thing I think that we're missing, and this certainly could have come in Acts, uh, particularly when you look at Acts 1.8, is that there's a certain power that we're missing. As a church, I think that there's a certain power that we're missing. And I don't think it's because we are constantly doubting our salvation. And, and my goal today is not to make you doubt your salvation. My goal would be to assure you. Um, now, the Holy Spirit may have other plans. Um, if you have doubts about your salvation coming out of today, it should be because of one of these standards that John sets. And if there is doubt, that, that's okay. We can have a conversation. We can take care of those doubts. This exists so that we may know and if we don't know, there's something that can help us know, okay? So don't come in today defensive. I'm going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about how much we suck. It's not going to be fun, all right? Don't get defensive. That is not God's goal for you. Okay, I can tell you some things that I know for sure. God does not want you to get defensive when you come to this text. We have to come to this text humble. Because if we can grab a hold of this and understand the assurance that he is trying to give us, we can live as a body in so much more power and understanding. Because if we live in power of the assurance of our salvation, like in Hebrews, we're going to see that we can approach the throne of God, like we just sang, before the throne of God. And if we have that type of power, we're going to be different people. If we have those type of people, we're going to be a different church. The doctrine is incredibly important when it comes to an understanding of whether or not I know God. Why? Because doctrine is simply theology, the study of God. If I know God, I have to know things about God. If I want to know my wife, I have to know things about my wife. If I don't know anything about her, then I can't claim to know her. If I don't know anything about God, then I can't claim to know God. And so theology is foundational to it, but it's not just what do I know or think about God, it's what is true about God. And so for the beginning here, God is holy. This message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. God is light. We need to acquaint ourselves with the severity of the radicalness of Scripture's claims. Just like we talked about in the financial class, uh, we need to deal with extremes. We need to understand that God is an extreme God. And again, not in, I know we're just a DC talk, so we're back in the 90s, but not in the extreme rad God, you know, that's on a skateboard. That's not the kind of extreme God that I'm talking about. He deals with, like, extremes. There's no middle ground. I think when we approach this text, when we approach our lives, we have too much middle ground. And you're saying, so what, we have to, we have to interpret the Bible literally? Sometimes, yes. Uh, I don't want to spend any time really talking about the debate that happened the other night between uh, Dr. Ham and, and Dr. Nye. But one of the big takeaways that I, I came away with that, is I knew how the debate was going to go. I know what was going to be accomplished, and I don't really want to talk about the different merits. But what I did walk away with, besides just an understanding of worldview being so set in stone, is this. Um, Bill Nye uh, <laughs> said, all right, so you're picking and choosing what you want to interpret literally. Um, you're, you're claiming that some is poetry and you don't have to take that literally and you're claiming that other things are commands and need to be taken literally. You're picking and choosing. And to me, that is just the pinnacle of ignorance when you were talking about how to interpret the Bible. 
Um, now, he never claims to be a Bible scholar, um, and having spent so much time in uh, math and science, I, he's obviously missing some of the arts. Uh, my mother's a reading teacher, and she's not going to teach her third graders, third graders, fourth graders. Uh, we have conversations. <laughs> I just forgot. Um, her, she's not going to teach her fourth graders um, to interpret poetry literally. That's not how you do literature. Um, yes, we're going to interpret poetry as poetry because it's poetry. Um, we're going to understand that some things are figurative. We're going to understand that some things are analogies. We're going to understand that some things are personifications. We're going to understand that there's these different parts of literature. And so when we approach text, some things can be interpreted literally. Now the other thing, though, for us as we're experiencing the text ourselves is we need to understand that some things that are literal may not be incredibly <laughs> clear. And some things that are literal may also be full of implications for us. So they're not stated, but they can be implied. Now, one of those things is that God is light. What does that mean? That God is light. Does that mean that that is God? No. So we can't go that literal. This is somewhat of an analogy. When we see that God is light, what is, the, what is he trying to say? The point for here, for us, the implication of God being light is that he is holy. God is holy, and we see that by the fact that he is light, and then in him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness in God whatsoever. Now the danger, again, for us as we approach the text is we see that God is light, and then the opposite contrast is darkness. Now when we're looking at light, when we look at in here, there are places that are absolutely lit, and there are places that are absolutely dark. Under the stage, for instance. But in between, there's this in-between for us, right? This is semi-lit, right? It's not as bright, and it's not darkness. So we have this, like, gray scale that goes on. From absolute white to darkness, we want to have some kind of gray area. Now, it's not enough for us to understand that God is simply that end point. He is only that end point. Everything else other than that one point is darkness, All this gray area is not gray, it is darkened. And so I think if we can set up from the get-go in verse 5 that there is no darkness whatsoever in God, then we can take then and imply that everything but Him is darkened. It may not be darkness, the literal black with an absence completely of light, but anywhere in between is darkness. Now that forces us then to interpret the rest of the text in a much different manner. Because he jumps into verse 6 and he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. Without that having been set up, you're thinking down here. If I'm walking down here in darkness, then this applies to me. But if we change our paradigm to understand that everything but that one point of complete light being God, that everything else is darkened and is therefore part of the darkness, then anywhere that we fall in this gray area that we would love to interpret in life allows us <laughs> to funnel into here. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, not just the end point, but anywhere in between, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. Verse 6 is the first of three claims of the false teachers. You might want to write these down as a separate, just put a one in a circle or something. There's three claims that the false teachers are making. So if he's talking about why doctrine's important, it's because false teaching is going on. And one of the claims that they're making is that we can have fellowship with God and still walk in darkness. 
And verse 6 is meant to directly counter that. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, then we are lying and we do not practice the truth. You might ask, where does, where does John come up with this idea of God being light? Where does this idea of God being holy come from? If you look in John's Gospel in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is saying to them, he says this, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is not new for John. This is not something that he came up with. This is Jesus' words. I am the light of the world. And then he comes in with his own controversial statement. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Because if we walk in darkness, we just we have no fellowship with him. Now you're asking, what is the darkness? If oh, the light is holiness, um, I know I'm not holy, so does that mean I don't have fellowship with God? This is where we do have to understand not necessarily a gray area, um, but something that's coming uh, in the sacrifice of Jesus. We see this in verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And here's your key. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, with our paradigm of God being light, he's at this end, and darkness being here, but also everywhere up to that point, this being darkness we, we don't fall in on that one spot. We don't. We fall somewhere in here, right? Now the question is, is how do we define that? The way we define darkness is sin. The way that we define darkness is sin. So taking our paradigm, which obviously is, is, uh, is flawed to a certain degree. This is the degree where it becomes flawed. We are going to be in the darkness, okay? There is no gray area. We need to understand that it's yes or no. We're walking with God or we're not. So having that set up, Anytime that we are walking in sin places us in the darkness. Now, we have the ability to walk in the light because of verse 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And having been cleansed of sin, we are then in his righteousness. Do you guys see that? I hope I didn't confuse you with the, the picture. There's a very real sense that we walk in sin. Right? We sin. And what he's getting ready to set us up for is how we get out of sin. Because the false teachers are claiming this. We can have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. And we, we can't. If we're not where he is, we're not with him. There's one way to be with him. To walk in the light as he is in the light. How does that come about? By the forgiveness of sin through the cleansing by the blood. Who's tracking with me? Just a couple more head bounces. Okay. And so what is imperative here that we first grab onto is the holiness of God. The holiness of God means that he cannot take part in any way or be involved in any way with sin at any time. If God is holy, he is without sin. He is perfect in all of his being and in all of his attributes. And so the holiness of God demands separation from sin. And what the false teachers are saying is that we can have fellowship with God as sinners. And John is very clear to say that we cannot because he is light and darkness has no place in light. In fact, light illuminates the darkness. So not only can we not walk with him, but we have to deal with the sin that we have. And the holiness of God needs to be our foundation point 
Because if we're going to understand the contrast of our sin versus his holiness, we have to have a perfect starting place. You see, when we, I've talked about this before, when I compare my sin to somebody else's sin, it gives me some kind of upper hand on them, right? I'm not as bad as they are. I haven't killed anybody. I've not raped anyone. I've not kidnapped anyone. I've not done any of these horrible things. I'm not a terrorist. I don't blow stuff up. So I'm, I'm better than them. And that kind of contrast allows me to elevate myself to say, I'm all right. I think that's where we find our culture. We can have fellowship with God and still walk in darkness. Why? Why can we walk in dar- darkness and still have fellowship with God? Because my sin's not that bad. I'm not as bad as that guy. It allows me to think that since I'm all right, God must be all right with me. That's another DC Talk song. You can look into that one. Um, Jesus is just all right with me. Um, when we compare ourselves to other sinners, it allows us to elevate ourselves. And when we do that, we try to bring God to us. Now, if we start with the holiness of God and we place him way over there and say, yeah, you know what? I stole a cookie when I was four. God's never done anything wrong ever. It separates us by such a large chasm. And so when we start there, then our second point makes so much more sense. We need to understand, secondly, that we are depraved. We're depraved. So having come out of his setup here that God is holy, and we look at the immutability of God, it means he cannot change. It means he is holy and will always be holy. He never changes. He is the light, which means he will never not be the light. He's not a sun that will one day explode and become a black hole, the opposite of light. He is light, always will be. And then we can set up our other contrast that we are depraved. In verse 8 he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but for also for the sins of the whole world. We need to understand the severity of our sin. In order to understand John's uh, claim here, particularly what does it look like for a believer to, look, to, to know God? We have to understand that we're not God. One of the common heresies running around is the fact that we can be a little God. Gnosticism talks about how we can attain a point of enlightenment where we ourselves become little gods. And the other thing that we've been talking about is the idea of the ascetics. They talked about how the flesh was evil. And so for Jesus to put the flesh on was for him to put on evil. These false teachings from the beginning eliminate the entire point of the virgin birth. The point of the virgin birth was so that Christ did not have a nature of sin. The flesh itself was not evil. The ascetics would claim, or the Stoics even more, would claim that the flesh itself is evil. So when Jesus became flesh, he became evil. And so, for them, holiness looks like denying pleasure. Denying anything that the flesh would want and being spiritual only. Jesus obviously talks about how as the flesh, we need to live in holiness. 
And it doesn't talk about denying ourselves anything. Instead, it's talking about our spiritual side. The ascetics would say that we, by having flesh, are evil. And the only way to be not evil is to deny anything that the flesh wants and live entirely spiritual. But Jesus is saying that the flesh is not evil. The spirit is sick. It's dead. The spiritual side of you is dead. That's why you're evil. You only desire darkness in your spirit. The flesh doesn't desire darkness. The spirit does. Because the spirit is what is attacked by the Holy Spirit and convicts us of sin. And when we can hide in darkness, we don't have to be ashamed of our sin. But when the light exposes the sin in our life, we have to understand that we do have sin. In verse 8, if we say we have none, then we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And so to be depraved is to start with an understanding that we are sinners. You see in verse 8 is the second claim. You can write a two and circle it. Second claim of the false teachers. That people had no natural tendency towards sin. That they were even without sin and that they were incapable of sinning. That's three steps too far. One is enough. Three is ridiculous. So they're denying that sin breaks our fellowship with God. That's the first claim. The second one is they're completely denying the sinful nature. They're saying that they have no tendency towards sin. And then the third claim is in verse 10, that we're even incapable of sin. They deny that their conduct ever would be involved in sin. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Now for us, we come to that and we're like, yeah, I'm a sinner, I've sinned before. So that's not even a temptation for me. But you need to understand their context before we take it to us. Understanding their context, they have false teachers that are coming into their bodies and they're saying you don't have to worry about sin nothing you do is sin because it's just the flesh the flesh doesn't matter it's the spiritual that matters and your flesh will die and your spirit will live and then that will go on that sounds really appealing doesn't it well that's why we're at where they're at (laughs) and we say yeah well i would never claim not to have sin your co-workers would it's not really sin how can you call that sin to be more explicit, homosexuality. How dare we call homosexuality a sin? That's the tipping point every time for that conversation in our culture. That we would dare call something that is natural, that is loving, that is all these things that they would call it, and call it a sin. Now, I was really kind of frustrated the other day dealing with some of these Olympic things. Um, they're really pushing that agenda. And I, I just want to say stuff on Facebook, not mean stuff, just address the inconsistencies. And I just, I know it's not going to do much good. And I, I was racking my brain as to why it is so hard to even just have a conversation with them. And it, you guys may already know this, but God spoke into my life and just said, it's because of their, it's our identity. You're not just saying that, that what they're doing is sin. You're saying that who they are is sin. Of course that's offensive. If your identity is wrapped up in your sexuality, and then someone says that that itself is sin, And everything about you is sin. And, you know, on the Christian side, we're saying, well, I'm a sinner too. It's not like I'm saying I'm perfect. And they're like, yeah, but you called me a a sinner. My identity is wrapped up in my sexuality. Because for us, we wouldn't say that, yeah, I lied, that's that's a sin. But my identity is not in me being a liar, right? Even when we would go into gluttony, when we would go into lust, our identity is not necessarily wrapped up in that. For them, 
their identity, who they are, is wrapped up in that. And so when we call that a sin, we're calling their very identity sin. But that's absolutely what is necessary to come to faith in Christ. See, when we talk about being depraved, the definition of total depravity would be that we are capable of absolute sin. We are capable of nothing good apart from the grace of God. That is different than utter depravity, saying that we are as bad as we could possibly be. There are very few people who are like that, and even the ones that we would claim may not even be as bad as they could possibly be. You look at Manson, you look at Dahmer, they may not have been as bad as they could be, and that's a horrifying thought. Hitler certainly could have been worse than he was. That would be utter depravity. For all of us, we were all totally depraved, understanding that we are capable of nothing good apart from the grace of God. If we can start there, then now we have two things set up for us. We have God being holy, and then we have us being capable of nothing good. We can bring no light into our life without God. Understanding that this gray area that we want to claim for ourselves, saying, I can kind of, you know, be somewhere in here. Without the grace of God, we can't move from that farthest point of darkness. And if we put our identity in something that is not God, and we find ourselves down there where we would place the homosexual. They don't understand that because we're talking about their identity. And for those who claim to be believers, we need to understand that we ourselves start there. An understanding of total depravity is going to allow us to do multiple things. It's going to allow us to break all three of these false claims. The first is that we cannot have fellowship with God and walk in sin. In the state that we are, we cannot be where the light is. In the state that we are, we understand that we are capable of nothing but evil apart from the grace of God. And then the third one, that our conduct is involved in any way in sin at all. I don't even know what to say to that. All people are sinners by nature and by practice. I, I, I don't even know how they got this far. I, mean, I, I guess it's the snowball effect of false teaching. The danger that there's a bit of truth in each one and it can just kind of pile up on each other. But to say that nothing that we do could be called sin in any way is just... <laughs> I've, sto- I've, I've, I've stolen cookies. I'm a sinner, okay? They were not mine to take. I've lied. That wasn't sin. It was part of my flesh. And since that's already evil, it's separate from me. So we can't, we can't do that. To understand that we are totally depraved allows us to set up this idea of doctrine, understanding where God is and where we are. Now, why is that important? Because we're not where he is. And there's only one thing that can solve that, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that pushes us then into verse 9. Yes, we're only there. In verse 9, the Christian bar of soap, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A verse I had to memorize since I was like six. Important for us to understand. You see, entering into an understanding of sin is not enough. It's not enough for us to say, yes, I'm a sinner. Something has to be done with that sin. And he pushes us into confession. If we confess our sins, it is a conditional statement. If you do not confess your sins, there is no forgiveness for you. If I do not confess my sins, there is no forgiveness for me. Yes, Bill Nye, that is a conditional statement. I, if, then. We'll go into verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. 
Confession is written so that we may not sin. How does that work? Confessing means that I did sin. So how does confessing help me not sin? See, confession is supposed to free us to enjoy fellowship with Christ. The entire point of confession is it allows us to go back into right fellowship with Christ, where the false teachers would say that you can still have fellowship with Christ and walk in the darkness. John says, no, we have to confess our sins in order to restore that fellowship. It has been broken because of sin, and it can be restored. Now, what's interesting is if we're trying to enjoy fellowship with Christ, and Christ is the head of the body, the church, and we're going to flush this out on Tuesday and Wednesday, what are the implications then for the body when it comes to confession of sin? You see, when sin happens, if we're looking at just our relationship with Christ, when sin happens, it breaks our fellowship with Christ. There's something in between that relationship. And when we confess to Christ, we're restored in that fellowship. Now, if he is the head of the body of the church, what does that confession to the head look like then for our implication of church body? One implication of that would be that we can't hold sin against someone that Christ has forgiven them for. For the body to look at another member who was in sin and has confessed it to God, then as the body, that person has been restored to the body just as it was restored to the head. That's something that is not explicitly said, that is implied by the text. We're going to work through some more of those. Understand that the role of the body in confession has multi, multiple layers when we're talking about confession and forgiveness. But sticking to our text, he says that um, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? The fact that God wants to forgive us needs to be a reality in our life. When it comes to confession and, and repentance, most of the time our natural tendency is to run to the darkness because the light has exposed our sin. And for me, when it came to learning to confess my sin, this was one of the pivotal points for me, is understanding that God wants to forgive us. You see, in our human relationships, when someone wrongs us, our desire is to pull back into ourselves, to give them the cold shoulder, to ignore them, to talk bad about them behind their back, anything to continue to push the relationship away because it's uncomfortable. What happens then if instead the person who was wronged just completely, really, really wants to forgive the other person. Doesn't that make it a little easier to apologize? Knowing that there's forgiveness to be found? Instead of wondering, well, maybe, maybe there will be, maybe there won't. Instead of going to them with the proper question of, will you forgive me? Knowing that maybe it could be, Father, forgive me, rather than will. You see, when I sin and I have to confess it to Jesus, well, particularly to God, with Jesus as my advocate, I don't have to go to the throne and say, will you forgive me? I don't have to. It's not a conditional will. I know he will if I do whatever I'm supposed to do. And by coming to the throne, I say, Father, I've sinned. Forgive me. Because I know he will. I don't have to say, will you? He will. And so in a relationship, understanding that God wants to forgive us, all we have to do is come to him. There's a humility involved in that. There's an understanding of our position to God. But knowing that we're his children and not his adversary should change the way that we approach the throne. 
You see, it's not just that he wants to, he enables the opportunity and ability through Christ. He wanted to forgive us so bad, he wanted to restore us so bad that he sent his son to die. And so we should confess so that we can enjoy maximum fellowship and joy with him. But understand that true confession requires a commitment not to continue in sin. And this pulls us back to our false teachings that we could continue. But true confession requires a commitment not to continue in sin. So you may be asking, why do we need to confess our sins if they've been forgiven completely in salvation, right? Makes sense. Jesus paid all my sins. Why do I have to confess them? It's more for us than anything. So there's three things I would say for this. The first thing is that we're agreeing with God that our sin truly is sin and that we're willing to turn from it. You'll see that all three of these things are in direct opposition to what the false teachers are saying. We're agreeing with God that our sin is sin. And we're willing to turn away from it. The second thing is we're ensuring that we don't conceal our sins from him and consequently from ourselves. This is where rationalization takes them. Where we say it wasn't that bad and we don't confess it to God and then we forget about it because it's not really a sin. But if we confess it, then we're ensuring that we don't hide anything from God and then particularly from ourselves. Number three, we're recognizing our tendency to sin and we're relying on his power to overcome it. So when we jump into chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children are my beloved, my beloved children. John is the affectionate disciple. It says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Understanding Jesus as the advocate is what allows us to have power in the gospel. See, the resurrection of Christ, that we've talked about a couple times in the past two months, gives us victory over sin and death. It's not just payment for our sins in the cross, but the resurrection gives us victory over sin, death, and the grave. And the fact that Jesus went somewhere, he went to the right hand of the Father and sat down. It was done. It was over. The work is done. And he sits there and makes intercession for us. That's his role now. That's his role. Um, Bible reading help hint maybe not if you're using a digital one if you have your bible and you look in the middle or sometimes on the side you see a bunch of really tiny verses you see that okay those are called cross references um those are valuable for getting a bigger idea of what scripture says concerning a specific verse in most cases but in that verse whatever topic it's talking about um looking at i believe verse one of chapter two uh particularly talking about the advocate your Bibles may say, um, next to a little 2-1, tiny in that little margin, uh, Romans chapter 8, 31, uh, and Hebrews seven twenty two. Those are the cross-references for this verse. So as you're reading um, and studying for the next week, uh, as you're doing your own personal study, you can check those out um, and just see kind of what the greater picture is on any given topic. So if you look at those two, let's just uh, practice this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, um, I'm sorry, I don't know what verse it was specifically. I pulled a big text. <laughs> Romans chapter 8 in there. 
Uh, but starting in verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Understand the gravity of that statement. If God is for us, and if, question, a conditional statement, if God indeed is for us, then who can be against us? That's, that's a huge statement. We're talking about creation and the idea of a big universe. If the God of the universe is for us, then who? What? What can be against us? All these massive possible potential things, what could be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? You go back to 1 John, that is our advocate. You look again at Romans chapter 8. It says, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our advocate. If you sin, there is an advocate for you. Another text it gives you is Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 22. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Makes sense. They died so they could no longer be priests. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He does not die. He is eternal. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, the humans, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That's our advocate. That's our advocate. That's what allows us to walk in the light as he is in the light. First John chapter 2, verse 2, he says, He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, big word. Anybody remember what it means? We've used it before. I want you to take your pencil. And draw a sponge. Alright? Put an equal sign and put wrath absorber. Put an equal sign, put bounty. Alright? Bounty. The quilted quicker picker upper. Alright? Jesus, our propitiation, is a wrath absorber. He is a sponge that absorbed all the wrath of God. So the cup of God's wrath was poured out onto Jesus for all the sins that he took, and he absorbed all of them. He drank the entire cup of the wrath. So when you see the word propitiation, this is from, you don't have to pay $1,000 for this, I learned this in school. Propitiation equals wrath absorber, sponge. 
So verse 2 is saying he is the absorber of the wrath that was due for all of our sin. Does that carry a little bit more weight? He is the absorber of the wrath due for all of our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And one more text for us back in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit is of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That is a loaded, loaded passage. But that's our transition out of our two doctrines. God is holy and we are depraved. Allows us to see then our second theme. What does the life of a believer look like? How do I know that I know God? We exercise our salvation by abiding in Jesus Christ. Part two. How do I know that I know God? This is going to go relatively quickly. How do I know that I know God? He's already given us a couple things. If you've been hopefully writing these down as you go, let's just work through the the previous text. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Here's a condition. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. That's one way to know. Do you continue to walk in darkness? Because if you do, you do not have fellowship with him. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with him. That's our second one. Are you walking in the light? If you do, or if you are, rather than you do have fellowship with him. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's your third one. Third test already. Are you claiming to not have sin? If you are, then you're deceiving yourself, and you are not in Christ. You do not have assurance of being a believer. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, there's your fourth one, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I'm not trying to step on your toes, it's what it says. If we say we've not sinned, then his word is not in us. Our culture says that all the time. I'm not that bad. Jesus will let me in because I'm not a sinner. Fifth one, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He's a propitiation for our sins. This is for the believer. If you sin and you repent of that, as we saw um, coming up, and you can put yourself into verse, I'm sorry, as we saw back in verse 9, I apologize, then you can put yourself into this. So there's your fifth one already. We jump into our new text and we say this, we exercise our salvation by abiding in Jesus Christ. How do I know that I know I'm a believer. Let's read it first. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him. There's number 6 right there. 
By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Are you keeping his commandments? If you're not keeping his commandments, then you don't know God. Verse 4, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Number seven. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Underline that. that that's the key. So if you're wondering where's that gray scale fit in, because I'm not there. I'm somewhere here. We know that by walking like him, we walk in faith. We walk in confession and repentance. And that confession allows us to have his righteousness put on us. And our unrighteousness is washed away. And that allows us to move out of the gray into the light. Does that make sense? That's the crux of this entire message. That's it. If you want to know how to get out of the gray, where you are not walking with God, then you walk in faith and confession and repentance. If you walk in faith and confession and repentance, then we have an advocate who removes our unrighteousness, who gives us his righteousness, and allows us then to walk in the light. That's it. That is the picture of the gospel here. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. 7, we get into a little bit of a, not a conclusion, but kind of a final thought of what it looks like to be in Christ Jesus. Having set it up in verse 6, he says this is how we walk with him, really. He says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This, this is a transitional statement for his context, talking about how, and again, we don't have the entire Bible printed in, in everybody's hand yet. They're moving in the new church away from the idea of the old te- covenant into the new covenant. All right, so this is a transitional statement for us. He's saying, what I'm telling you isn't new. It's what you've had from before. But it is new in the fact that Jesus has come, he is the light, and he is casting out all the darkness. It is a new covenant. It is a new time. We are in the kingdom. And so for, for us, we're saying, okay, we just need to step back and look at our gospel kingdom track of the covenants. And for those of you that weren't with us for that, I apologize. This is a little obscure. But if you remember back to our gospel kingdom series, he's giving them the transition from the prophesied kingdom into the proclaimed kingdom. Make sense? That's a transitional statement for us. So verse 9 then kind of leads us back into his thrust. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Okay, so we know there's light, we know there's darkness, we know that we're supposed to walk like him to be in the light. Right? That's the first two points. The second one, how do I know that I'm doing that? And he gives us a series of tests to measure against our life to say, am I doing this? Because if I am, then this. Am I not doing this? Because if I'm not, then this. Make sense? So we jump into 9 and he says, if you say that you're in the light, but you hate your brother then you're still in darkness. You're lying to yourself. Because in 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
And so how do we know that we've come to know him? In verse 3, verses 5 and 6, we abide in him. We keep his commandments. We abide in the light. We walk in what he has said. And this isn't a new thought for John. If you look in John chapter 15 of his gospel, we see Jesus saying this. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This has nothing to do with earning our salvation. We need to try as much as we can to dismiss that fear that we Baptists have of earning our salvation. This idea of works-based salvation only came about because of the Catholic Church and the Reformation. Right? They're doing everything they can to earn salvation. And we rebutted against that so hard in the Reformation that we've gone to the complete opposite, where we, everything we do cannot be at all in any way related to salvation. And he's saying here, prove to be my disciples. It doesn't have to do anything to do with earning. It's just showing, proving, making an example, illustrating. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So when it comes to the idea of abiding, it's not anything that's new for John. He learned this from Jesus. He learned this from Jesus. And so we exercise our salvation by abiding in Jesus Christ. If you want to know you're a believer, then you are abiding in Jesus Christ. You are part of the vine. If you're not part of the vine, then you're not a believer. Now here's what's cool. Just because you're not in the vine right now, doesn't mean you can't, can't ever be in the vine. You see, any branch that is in the vine of Jesus Christ was not there originally. Okay? Out of Jesus the vine, the branches did not grow. There are no branches in the vine that grow out of Jesus Christ. They are all grafted onto it. I don't entirely have a green thumb at all. Um, that would be this lovely lady right here. Um, you should see her garden. But the idea of grafting is not anything that's necessarily new. Just as the Gentiles have been grafted into the church, it's not just the Jews, none of us are Jewish, at least that I'm aware of. We've been grafted into, adopted into, the same idea follows here. If you are not part of the vine now, you can be, at least until you're cast in the fire and burned. That branch can be grafted onto, attached to the vine, and then bears much fruit. And so as you're looking at this text, and I know I've read and said a lot today, 
and I know we're drawing to a close, but how do I know that I know God? I'm part of the vine. I don't continue sinning deliberately. I don't neglect to meet together. I'm with the body. I take care of one another. I encourage one another. I hold fast the true doctrine and the confession. I walk with God. That's how you know. If you don't do those things, then you have no assurance of faith. Now here's what's beautiful about this is abiding allows us to rest in the power and the resources of the vine. And that's that's my plea, that's my concern, that's that's my biggest goal, at least and as far as renovation is concerned, is taking us as a body to understanding that if you are a believer, you're a believer. <laughs> there's great power there, there's great assurance there, there's great things that can be done there, there are great resources that are available there because it's not up to you. None of your assurance has anything to do with you. As we've talked about, God prepared good things for us to do, to walk in the Spirit. He created the things for us to do, and He powers us and able to do them. And so, Christian, ask yourself these questions. Am I walking in the light? Do I abide in the vine? What does it look like then going further? Well, if we exercise our salvation by abiding in Jesus Christ, it's going to do something. The fruit that he was talking about in John chapter 15, the fruit that he was talking about, has much to do with Hebrews chapter 10, but particularly we move on into our text in verse 12. Abiding produces full maturity. Abiding produces full maturity. If you exercise your salvation by abiding in Jesus Christ, it's going to do something. It leads us to here. Verse 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So, what is he doing here? It's a cute little thing where he mentions the same thing three different times. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven and for his name's sake. I write to you children because you know the Father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's the only one that he exactly repeats. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Take some time and just look at how he repeats. It was A, B, C, A, B, C and compare what he's saying. Understand that the entire point of this is he's writing to the, you, everyone, little children, this is beloved, because our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. If you're a believer, your sins are forgiven and that's why I'm writing to you. Understand that and live in that freedom. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. The fathers know the heritage. The fathers have the maturity. The fathers have the understanding of everything that has come before. And I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. You are learning. You have become a believer. 
You have overcome sin, death, and the grave by being a believer. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Again, to everyone, he says, I am writing to you because you know the Father. Knowing the Father implies that you're walking in confession and repentance. You walk in the light. This is his summary. He ties it all up together. He writes to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Same thing. You should be mature. You should know these things. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what does that mean for us? We're going to extrapolate this into a bigger picture of the New Testament. We need to look at Titus chapter 2. To know that I know God means that I have to do something. There is something that is going to result from my knowing God. I do not stay the same after I know God. Something happens. So a measuring stick for you. If you are a believer, is, these, is this true of you? Are the things that I'm getting ready to read true for you? If you are an older believer here today, not just in age, but you've been around for a while, but particularly for those of you of age, there are a lot of things coming up in Titus chapter 2 that we need from you and renovation, and we need it yesterday. Parents, dads, moms, middle-level believers, there are things that are required of you that we need yesterday. There are things that you have to do as a mature believer in Christ. Young believer, single, college, um, maybe still just young in your faith, having not spent a ton of time in the Word and grown in maturity, there are things that are required of you. But a large part of that is learning and looking to the older people. So let's read Titus chapter 2. Abiding in the vine is going to lead to this type of maturity. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. I'm sorry, I say that all the time, but it's in the Bible. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, does this sound like you, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love and steadfastness. Older women, does this sound like you? You likewise are to be reverent in your behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Men, older men, you need to teach the younger men to be self-controlled. You need to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. That is Christian maturity. Are you growing in those things? So as Matt asked last week, what's your doctrine look like? As your doctrine growing, do you know God? What's your walk look like? Are you walking 
with God? And for our text, are you walking in the light? Are you clinging to sound doctrine? Are you teaching it? So in very short summary, two doctrines to grab a hold of that set us up for an understanding of what it looks like to know God. To know that he is holy, to know where we are as depraved human beings and understanding that we need grace to even do anything good, let alone to be rescued, to, bring, to be brought into the light that allows us to then see that abiding in Christ in the light as he is in the light, as we grow out of him and empowered by him, we grow and produce fruit and that fruit looks like Christian maturity. And so today, if these things are not true of you, you can still be grafted into the vine. It's not too late yet. It may be on your drive home. If you're a believer, it should have a completely opposite effect for you. If these things are true of you, then you can say, these are true of me. I am persevering. I am a believer. There's great assurance. We can walk boldly into the throne room. We can ask God for what we want. Why? Because we abide in the vine, and we're going to desire the things he desires. We're going to desire to produce fruit, and we can rest in that. My goal for us coming out of 1 John and, and Matt's as well is that we be believers who know God. That we be real Christians. We know who Jesus is. We've looked at Luke. What does it mean to know that we know God? These things have to be true of our life. And that's a challenge, but it comes through confession and repentance. And I hope you saw some of that in our worship time today as we sang, Come You Sinners, the call to confession, understanding that we don't fix everything before we come to God. We come to the throne as sinners and we say, Forgive us, Father, knowing that there's forgiveness to be found because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because there's no wrath left for us. It's been absorbed by our wrath absorber and the propitiation on the cross. You see that it's by grace alone that we can come to him. And before the throne we have a strong and perfect plea. The great high king whose name is love. Whoever lives and dies for me. We can walk in the light. I hope you see and you can trace through our worship the call to salvation, the call to walking in the light, the call to confess, the call to repent. I hope you can see it in our final song. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's sing one more song together um, and then enjoy the rest of our day. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for your word. I, I, I may not be the best public speaking practice to just read scripture, but Father, you can say it so much better than I can. And Father, I love seeing and tracing through your word the same thoughts, Father. People would claim that it is a contradictory word. I see nothing but unity. Father, not even just in the same writer, but Father, across your entire word, I see your plan coming together. I see, Father, how you have designed our life and the body to look like. Father, as we spur one another on, we can encourage each other in your word. We can encourage each other in what you're doing. Father, we can find assurance in the fact that we are abiding in the vine. We find power in the fact that we live a Christian life enriched by the Holy Spirit, joined with your Son on the cross, dying to ourselves daily, living for the kingdom. 
And Father, when it comes to doctrine, we understand that it's not some lofty, unattainable thing. But Father, you have brought yourself to us. You have brought your word to us so that we can understand you. That it's simply an understanding of who you are. And that it should be one of the most important things to us. And Father, that we know now more than ever what it looks like to know you. Father, we also understand the warning that's given us in Hebrews. That we must hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised you, you are faithful. So, Father, that we stir up good works in one another and love. We don't neglect meeting with each other. But we encourage each other. And understand that we can no longer deliberately sin. Now that we have received the knowledge of the truth. If we do, there's nothing left for us but judgment. Father, stir up in us an understanding of sin. But Father, let us see whether or not we abide in the vine. Only you can do that. I can ask questions all day long. I can point at scripture all day long. But Father, it's your word that will illustrate that. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.